a QuackCast, a review of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine, i.e. scams. This is number 213. It's called A Pox on All Our Houses. Since I turned my science-based medicine blog entries into podcasts, if you want the references, go to sciencebasedmedicine.org. Summary. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a monkeypox. What's monkeypox? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call orthopox virus by any other name would sicken as much. So monkeypox would, were he not monkeypox called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Monkeypox, mutate, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. Juliet, just asking to be patient zero. They tell us that we lost our tails, evolving up from little snails. I say it's all just wind and sails. Are we not men? We are citrate. Are we not men? D-E-V-O. Monkey men all in business suits. Teachers and critics all dance the poot. Are we not men? We are megaplates. Are we not men? D-E-V-O. Are we not men? We are Devo. We must repeat. D-E-V-O. Homo Jocko by Devo. Sort of. That brings back memories. I saw Devo back in medical school. When I was in medical school, not Devo. Fun show. My brother bought an energy dome hat since unfortunately lost. Monkeypox. I know Dr. Novella recently discussed monkeypox, but I feel like a little idle speculation on the topic. Emphasis on speculation. You got your monkeypox, your chickenpox, your smallpox. Ever wonder what the great pox was? Syphilis. So horrible, it was worse even than smallpox. From reports, syphilis was quite the disease when it hit Europe in the 15th century. Different clinically and more virulent than the three stages of Louise we have today. Why the difference? Did the spirochete evolve? Did we evolve? Some combination? No one knows. The standard model is that the old world gave smallpox to the new, and the new world returned the favor with the great pox. Or was syphilis circulating in Europe before Columbus and took an evolutionary leap into virulence? It might be the case. Quote, Researchers managed to recover in sequence treponemal DNA from four samples and compared the sequences to a modern strain of syphilis. The diversity of strains around the time of Columbus's crossing offers additional evidence that the pathogen had already made a home in Europe. Syphilis, or pox, understanding infectious diseases is, at its core, applied evolution. Uh, Throughout this podcast, I'm going to use language that will drive real evolutionists crazy with adjectives that suggest organisms have evolutionary agency. I know they don't. Maybe it's sloppy, but I lean towards the colloquial and away from the formal. That's the Oregon way, where formal dress is tucking your t-shirt into your hiking pants. As an aside, I have always liked the word pox, and it is a shame that pox is not more widely used. Medicine has a lot of archaic language that we are poorer for no longer using. And I thought it was a pox on both your houses, and I had this whole Romeo and Juliet theme plotted when I discovered it was a plague on both your houses. They have made worms meet of me. A quote by Mercutio, worthy of any of the plagues of the last 40 years. 
With over a million dead, COVID-45 has been making worms meat of far too many. An ID consultation has at its heart three components. What infection does the patient have? Why do they have that infection? And how best to treat it? It is the why that is usually the most enjoyable to tease out from the case and the most interesting. Why at the molecular level, the human level, the societal level. Infectious disease docs, as I have said before, are the only truly holistic doctors. Infections first have to spread. And there are three ways to acquire infections. You can eat it, you can touch it, you can breathe it. If you are a splitter, you could say food or water are subsets of eating and sex is a subset of touching. And breathing has this annoying spectrum from droplets to aerosols. And there are all the odd ways of getting infections like injection drugs or insect bites or transfusions, but those are just subsets of touch. For simplicity's sake, I remain a lumper. Then organisms have to adhere to something. The pathogen has to stick to a cell, a protein, a sugar, a receptor. Without binding to something, i.e. gaining a toehold, infections cannot start. I find the adherence of pathogens endlessly interesting, which is in part why I am never invited to parties. I spent three years of my life trying and failing to determine how Canada adhered to endothelial cells, and I think I was the world's worst bench researcher. COVID has its ACE2 receptors. HIV, its CD4 chemokine receptors. Interestingly for HIV, those receptors have the high density on the foreskins, which is in part why circumcision is one way to decrease HIV spread. Influenza starts by binding to sugar residues that are common in the upper airway of humans. The good news is that bird flu binds to different sugars, which humans do not have. The bad news? Bird flu is maybe three mutations or an unfortunate recombination away from being able to use the human upper airway sugars for adherence. Streptococcus bovis has enhanced ability to adhere to the matrix of bowel cancer, which is why bacteremia with that organism warrants an evaluation for gastrointestinal malignancy. And on and on and on. Each organism has its preferred binding site, its staging site, from which it can launch its invasion. Of course, there is the ying of the receptors to the yang of the pathogen binding. We are all different, a mass of polymorphisms and inherited genetic quirks that may increase or decrease the pathogen's ability to adhere to us. Most of the polymorphisms that show up in my feeds concern the immune system, but my favorite, and yes, I have favorites, the whole not being invited to party thing, is mutant snot. If you have the wrong snot, you are at increased risk for invasive meningococcal disease. Or as a scientist would put it, quote, a mutation in the Splunk-1 affecting mucosal attachment to biofilm formation and invasion of mucosal epithelial cells is a new genetic cause of meningococcal disease. The last stage of infection is the land rush. Pathogens want a wide open vista with no competition that they can fill with their progeny. And competition comes in many forms. Other organisms, immunity, cilia, diarrhea, cough. Get rid of the right competition and the organism can spread widely and quickly. Spread, adhere, land rush. So how might that apply to monkeypox? Well, monkeypox is spread by contact and droplets with perhaps a bit of aerosol, like smallpox. There is always a question from an infection control perspective. 
disease spread by contact in droplet is the predominant method of spread. But there are always unique circumstances, often human behaviors, that will aid in the spread of disease by both its common route and by less common route. Want to increase the transmission of TB? Hotbox. That's where you sit in a car, roll up all your window, and smoke a joint with your friends. It also spreads TB. Transmit more hepatitis C? Invent syringes and needles, etc., etc. Human behaviors can lead to a surprising number of ways to aid pathogen spread. The smartest way a pathogen can spread is to be a sexually transmitted disease. Sex brings close contact and is face-to-face -face as well as face-to-many other areas. Humans tend towards polymorphous perversity, as Freud said, but Freud was a crock. I prefer the idea that for humans there is nothing unnatural, just untried. And humans tend to try every possible behavior, and with that behavior comes the potential for disease spread. Monkeypox, while not a true sexually transmitted disease yet, is apparently latching on to that method to help spread. But as noted above, sex is just a very intimate form of contact spread. Being an STD is smart for many reasons. One is that I have noticed that people tend to repeat sexual contacts, giving a pathogen many opportunities to spread. Symptomatic pox may occur in and around an orifice that is not being examined by the afflicted and may not be noticed during passion in a darkened environment. Finally, people are often have sex even when they are not feeling well, i.e. when they are infectious. In the old days, before the cause of AIDS was known, let alone heart, and currently, people continue to have sex while symptomatic for HIV. And one of the risk factors for acquiring HIV is the presence of a genital ulcer. People are willing to have sex while they have a genital ulcer. And it is no surprise that circumcision may in initially increase the acquisition of HIV because patients did not want to wait to be healed until they had sex. So I suspect that a presence of a pox, like that of an ulcer or a circumcision scab, will not deter many people from going ahead and having sex. I have a memory from high school of a Lenny Bruce bit where he is in the ER with his leg cut off and he expresses a willingness to have sex at that moment. I can't find that bit on the web, so it may be a false memory. But the concept is valid. So if monkeypox is trying to go down the STD route, this is a wise choice from a transmission perspective. So what about initial binding? For smallpox, all I can find is, quote, the virus binds to cell receptors by hemagglutinin antigens expressed on its outer surface. The exact mechanism of entry is not yet known, and I suppose unlikely to be known. At least, I hope no one is currently doing smallpox transmission studies. And for other pox viruses, quote, in general, pox viruses show species specificities that range from narrow to broad, and we still know little about the fundamental invasion mechanisms that mediate the host tropism of individual pox viruses. Even if variola virus never again infects humans, there are other pox viruses that can cause serious human disease. And for monkeypox, quote, the genomes of monkeypox and variola viruses are about 96% similar in the central regions, but differ in the terminal regions, the place where most of the virulence and host-related genes are located. Phylogenetic analysis has shown that variola and monkeypox viruses 
have a common ancestor, but have not evolved one from the other. Monkeypox and smallpox seem different enough that the former is unlikely to take over the space once occupied by the latter. But there is always the worry that given its wide tissue tropism, that it could settle into humans to become the new syphilis. And that would not surprise me. And for the initial adherence, quote, for pox virus, no specific host cell receptors have been identified. Therefore, pox viruses can probably bind to and enter a wide range of mammalian cells, but the ability of a given pox virus to fully complete the replication cycle varies markedly between the cells of different lineages and species origins. So I can't really glean from the basic starting point of infections for monkeypox if there is a potential for an enhanced pathogenicity by increasing adherence in human cells. Time will tell, as time is wont to do. But we do know that monkeypox can infect human cells, so it's already halfway there. There are many articles that mention DNA viruses do not mutate with the abandon of an RNA virus like COVID-45. I do not find that reassuring. Monkeypox is mutating, as it should. The genomes for the current outbreak share 40-some mutations with each other that distinguish them from their closest relatives, although the significance of these mutations is uncertain. I always keep two studies in mind when it comes to organisms mutating for increased fitness in a new environment. The first was by Richard Linsky, who grew, quote, E. coli continuously for 20 years in his Michigan State lab. For that fast-growing bug, that's over 40,000 generations. And after 30,000 generations, the organisms developed the ability to metabolize citrate as an energy source. Quote, the major point Linsky emphasizes in the paper is the historical contingency of the new ability. It took trillions of cells and 30,000 generations to develop it, and only one of a dozen cell lines did so. What's more, Linsky carefully went back to the cells from the same line he had frozen away after evolving for fewer generations and showed that, for the most part, only cells that had evolved at least 20,000 generations could give rise to citrate-using mutation. From this, he had deduced that a previously lucky mutation had arisen in one line, a mutation of which was needed before a second mutation could give rise to the new ability, i.e. citrate metabolism. The other cell lines hadn't acquired the first necessarily lucky potentiating mechanism so they could go on to develop the second mutation that allows citrate use. The other study I keep in mind is the megaplate. Here's the point where you should pause this podcast and go look at the video of the megaplate. It's only two minutes long, and it's the whole picture versus a thousand words thing. Or maybe it's a podcast is worth a thousand words. It basically is a very graphical demonstration of how E. coli mutate and invade into increasingly hostile environments. That hostile environment being increasing concentrations of antibiotics. You seen it? Cool, huh? And scary. But my take home, humans are citrate. Humans are a megaplate. Since monkeypox has found a nice home in humans, I will not be surprised if it rearranges itself and us to make itself more comfortable. Cable, a good chair, high-speed internet, the usual stuff for comfort. And why wouldn't it? 
All it will need is time and replication. And vaccinia is still circulating in South and Central America in humans and cows. What if a monkeypox and a vaccinia infect the same human? Quote, recombination between co-infecting pox viruses provides an important mechanism for generating the dif genetic diversity that underpins evolution. Or what if monkeypox jumps into U.S. rodents? Congress would be doomed. And it would become endemic in parts of the United States, given, quote, in New York City, the rat population is 25% the size of the human population. That's about 2 million rats. So uh, rat pox would probably become a better name for the virus. I hope the WHO is paying attention when they change the name of monkeypox. Or maybe instead of rat pox, we should call it cagney pox. Probably nothing will happen. But to paraphrase the Borg, we are microorganisms. Lower your immunity and surrender your cells. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your biochemistry will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Smallpox vaccination stopped in the United States in 1972, and every year since has added a new cohort of monkey virus susceptible humans. Humans are basically Oklahoma circa 1889, a land rush waiting to happen. The monkeypox are lined up waiting to grab their acreage. So will monkeypox settle into humans for the long haul? It's a reasonable possibility. HIV did it. COVID-45 is doing it. Hell, measles did it by way of render pest from cows about 900 years ago. You give it a chance, it's what a pathogen will do. So why not monkeypox? And that ends QuackCast number 213. As I mentioned, references are available at sciencebasedmedicine.org. And if you're listening to this on June 19th, happy Father's Day. <laughs>